This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. One of the other topics kind of surrounding the presidential election is the value of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Republican nominee Donald Trump has been vocal against the deal, saying the U.S. economy has been hurt by imports from China and that the TPP will continue this. Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton hasn't been as vocal, but seemingly coming across that she's not in favor of this deal as well. All the while, Chinese economy still in a bit of a state of flux. To take a look at what's going on, we're joined here in the studio by Wharton Associate Professor of Management, Minwan Zhao, and then also Penn Law Professor Jacques Delisle, who's the director of the Center for East Asian Studies. Great to see you both. Great to be Glad back. To be here. Thank you very much. Uh, we've discussed this a few times, the path of the Chinese economy right now. Where do we stand at, at this point? I mean, it, seemingly that those growth numbers are still kind of dwindling a little bit, correct? Yeah, I remember, interestingly, I remember the first conversation we had on this radio uh, two years ago. And I think the key word was uncertainty. Uh, I'm afraid two years down the road, (laughs) it's still the case. I think the worst number, uh, well, two worst numbers. Um, One is the the dropping uh, private sector investment. Yeah. But that should not surprise anyone, right? So, you know, if you see the headlines that um, she wants to make sure, make sure that the state-owned enterprises are better, stronger, larger. Yeah. And if you're a smart, you know, enterprise owner, what do you do? Right. Right. So, um this is, you know, with economic slowdown, which I emphasized again and again, is normal. You have this kind of, you know, policy coming around. Uncertainty is very, still very high on people's list. And the other thing is the, um, uh, the new loans coming out of banks, yeah. which is almost all dominated by real estate uh, loans taken out by households, which, again, is a red flag. Jacques? Yeah, that's right. I think we're seeing the latest installment in a story we've been returning to from time to time on this show, which is, you know, the new normal is somewhere in the six, if you're lucky, seven percent range. That's not anything to be alarmed about. Nobody grows at 10, 12 percent forever. And so the real question, though, is, is even six or seven percent sustainable? What's being done to sustain it and what's being done? Uh, to really implement the new growth model that they've been talking about, which is a lower growth model, but which still needs to have some things put in place to be a successful lower growth model. So we've been hearing for a long time about rebalancing from exports to the domestic economy, and that that has been happening to a significant degree. Trying to rebalance from investment toward consumption and services, and that's been a more mixed picture. Uh, There's still a lot of state investment, and as Minyan says, the private investments come down, so you know that's not exactly the way they wanted to reduce investment. The idea was to reduce the state-driven stuff and go more to the private sector. Uh, and then there were the two other items on the agenda were reforming state-owned enterprises to put them more fully on a market basis, and that's pretty much dead in the water despite <laughs> promises to do so. In mm-hmm. fact, there's an argument it's even almost going in reverse. Okay. And to clean up the financial system to make it more yeah. disciplined and more market-oriented. And you know, a year ago, we were talking about interventions in the stock market. There hasn't been anything quite that dramatic, but there's still a pattern of, of we aren't there yet on the reforms. But, but there was an article, I guess, in the in the Wall Street Journal in the last couple of days that, that talked about... Uh, talking with people at UBS saying that uh, that the government is doing 
you know, versions of bailouts for the banking sector over in China right now. Yeah, and that's the, the you know, I mean, you're talking yeah, about the loan problem. So, yeah. so there are, you know, um, obvious policies to uh, to remove the non-performing loans to asset management firms. You know, uh, they're writing off bad loans in a big way. So when you look at the balance sheet of the largest, you know, uh, state-owned banks, they're not that bad. Right. Not as bad as the alarmist on Wall Street Journal would like you to believe, yeah. partly because they've written off them uh, very aggressively and partly because of the housing boom. Was like nobody expected this kind of spectacular growth in the housing yeah. market in such a slow economy, right? Well, not nobody. When there's no investment potential in the real sector, what do you do? You put right. money in the real estate. So, you know, Shanghai and Shenzhen, those cities saw, saw 50% growth. 50% in the last five zero, five zero. <laughs> and so you know immediately the, the bank is balance so some of them have a strong exposure to the real estate companies yeah and we're seeing uh, are looking better so you know in a sense the the individual households are bailing out the big banks and that's long been the story. I mean, the, the yeah. money for state-owned enterprises passed through the banks has always come from individual savings. And you still have a system of what is essentially financial repression in China. Where does the money go? Yeah. Uh, you could put it in a, in a bank at terrible interest rates, you know, negative real interest rates. You could put it into the stock market, which is something of a casino uh, and has had its volatility. <laughs> you could try to get it abroad, but that's not an option available for a lot of people. Uh, and so it flows into things like the housing sector. And right. we've, we've seen this concern surface. We haven't had a you know, real bubble burst, but it's a recurring concern. You, uh, you uh, mentioned before we, we started this that you were just over there for uh, for a good bit of time. Mm -hmm. uh, from what you see over there, I mean, I don't know what the, when the last time was you were right. you're over in China, but mm -hmm. you see it firsthand. What were the biggest changes that you noticed within the structure of the economy just in the cities that you were in? Well, I think uncertainty is certainly um, the key word. You know, everyone is talking about this because what well, the idea is... Um, there should be sig some signal by now where the country is going, right. you know, and you know, how to interpret the mixing signals. Uh, for example, on the one hand, you know, there was push for privatization, PPP reforms, and the, the uh, language was very strong, right? Reform has to go on at any cost. And on the other hand, you know, as I said, there was the slogan, right? You know, we should have all the confidence that state-owned enterprises can be bigger and stronger, and it has to be. It was like, okay, these two really don't go hand in hand. So everyone is trying very hard to interpret the signals. And China pre is pretty much still a top-down economy, mm -hmm. right? Uh, where the economy goes depends pretty much on how the policy is being formulated at the top. So there's a lot, a tremendous effort at interpreting in every single signal coming from the top. Um, not sure how successful they are. Um, on the other hand, you know, there are pockets of very optimistic business people, you know, mm -hmm. particularly in the e-commerce sector, in the, the so-called new technology. There's still a lot of progress made in improving the infrastructure. So if you're riding the high-speed rail while browsing the web, ordering the dinner for you, waiting for you at home when you arrive, and it was like, wow, this is a wonderful China. What sure. kind of 
you know, Wall Street Journal is just painting such a negative <laughs> picture because life is so good, so convenient, and so ahead of the U.S. And then after you arrive and talk with your dinner friends, they were talking about uncertainty and where to go next. So it's a very mixed picture. But I mean, any time you have such a a, a housing boom, mm-hmm. at some point that slows down. I mean, right. it, it can't continue for the next thirty years. Uh, so then you have to obviously you have to look beyond that at the other pieces of, of the economy that maybe haven't grown as much or as quickly as as you would like. And then you have to focus on those as well. But but they should be happening at the same time. Right. right? Well, the housing boom is both the consequence and cause for the slowdown. Right. Right. You know. It's a consequence because there's not many promising projects to invest in in the real economy. So what do you do? You put money in the uh, in the housing market. So um, and the consequence of that is the cost makes the high cost uh, makes the real businesses um, the businesses in the real sector yeah. uh, more more difficult to survive. So. I, I interviewed many managers in Shanghai, and they're moving their companies out. You know, even R and D centers are moving out just because mm. the young people they're hiring cannot afford a house in Shanghai. Yeah, eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the number if you'd like to join in the conversation. Minwan Zhao from the uh, Wharton School, Penn Law Professor Jacques Delisle joins us as well. Um, I guess then, where do we focus on China's growth? And in your mind, in the in the next few years, because seemingly they still are one of the very important factors to the global economy right now. Sure, and you know they they're very much aware of the problem, and there's a lot of uh, talk about the right things to do. But you know, as the saying goes in Chinese, implementation is difficult. Uh, you know, there are losers and people push back. But you know, Minyan mentioned the high tech sector, where China has been doing some really extraordinary things. I mean, they really are doing cutting edge work in a lot of a lot of subsectors. Uh, the emphasis on the service economy and domestic consumption that's real, and there's been some progress there. Yeah. Uh, that's where it's got to go. And you know, if you look at the at the big almost demographic picture, you can see the pressures for. This. Right, China has an aging population, yeah. uh, so you know, brawn type labor is not really going to be where it's at. You right. need things that can keep people employed uh, into their later years. There's been a vast expansion of higher education, very uneven in quality, but still a vast expansion. So you need jobs for college graduates, and that's one of the the sources of malaise in the cities is people who are graduating and not finding jobs. Um, and China is no longer that low cost an economy, so you can't make the cheap stuff. A lot of that's going off to Vietnam and Bangladesh and wherever, uh, and so they're trying to find those. Which are more high value added uh, sectors, but you know that's that employs a limited number of people, and it's not that easy to manage in a, in a terribly planned way. Meanwhile, yeah, I agree. Um, so the. The housing boom, you know, going going back to the cons- uh, transition to the uh, consumption, um, the housing, uh, the risk of how housing prices is on the agenda for many policymakers now, and they they realize the importance of that as uh, a deterrent of uh, rising consumption. Right, if you put a certain uh, chunk of monthly income on housing, you know, you're going to spend less on restaurant and, uh, and entertainment. Right. Um, but despite that, you know, consumption is growing at 10% and above. So, yes, it's 
below expectation, which was you know cited as bad news everywhere. But ten percent right. is a good growth in this kind of economy, and there are still many bright spots, you know, in in travel, in entertainment, and the transition, you know, from my observation this time, the transition is happening, and people are. Yeah, accepting the fact that manufacturing jobs are going away, and we'll just have to look for new opportunities. Yeah, and if you look at the share of the service sector in the economy, it, it's mm-hmm. up there in I think the 40s or 50s, depending on how you count it now. Right. Uh, and and if you do see 10% growth in consumption with an economy that's only growing about 6%. That is rebalancing toward consumption. Uh, the housing uh, boom actually does drive some consumption. People buy houses. Sure. And there's consumption that goes into fixing them up and buying mm-hmm. the appliances yeah. and such. Uh, so you know, this is not a a disaster story. It is a uh, a decline from you know superheated happy days are here again forever, uh, and it is a concern about how to keep it rolling going forward. So that 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 new norm that we've talked about uh, with the two of you in the past that is maybe starting to take hold a little bit. The understanding that, that you know that uh, that this is what we should expect in China for you know for the next several years. Well, I don't think we're in the new norm yet. Norm, okay. the word norm, maybe heading. English being my second language. Normal. Norm, normal, you know, give me the impression that there's some kind of equilibrium, you know, at least right. dynamic equilibrium. I don't think we're at the equilibrium yet. You know, as Jacques uh, mentioned, the policy, where where do we go uh, with the SOE reforms, you know, how, how to deal with the currency issues. You know, you cannot put a tight lid on capital outflow all the time. Those with connections are still moving money out. But, you know, that's kind of tight control on the household um, uh, finance. That's not a norm, right? You cannot do that uh, over a long time. So um, I don't think we are at the new norm yet. Economy is going to slow down, but whether you allow the economy to slow down, to shake out the inefficient companies, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, prepare the ground for new growth, or you some kind of intervene here and there, trying to fix it at 6% and prolong the process, um, it's not clear. I think there's been a successful lowering of targets and expectations to the 6 to 7% range. Mm -hmm. And there are some big picture ideas of where the reforms in general need to head. But the uncertainty that Minyan's been talking about is how do we get from here to there? Uh, How how, uh, bold do you uh, be in doing that? And and how do you avoid the temptation to say, oh, this is going to have some short-term pain. What do I do to to, to deal with that? And it has some long-term risk. And those are are tough policy questions. We've talked uh, on this show about Trans-Pacific Partnership and, and you know what was going to happen with that, and it seemed like for quite a while with President Obama in office that uh, that there was a decent possibility of of the TPP. Uh, it's looking more and more like whoever gets into the White House that TPP is not going to be a reality. Uh, you, in terms of of what you've written about Jacques with the TPP, what's the expectation of this potential going forward at this point? Well, I mean, there's going to be some kind of TPP in right. all likelihood. The question is, will the U.S. Uh, join it in, in the first round? And you know, it's got this funny history because people think of it as the U.S.-driven trade agreement. And certainly that's what it's become. But it started right. out with Singapore and a couple of others in uh, in the region. Um, yes, both candidates are against it. Uh, I, I would not by any means yet rule <laughs> out 
a lame duck session push to try to get it through. I wouldn't put a lot of money on that happening, but right. I think you may see the effort. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Obama, for all that he has done to support uh, Clinton's candidacy, he has not thrown TPP under the bus. So that's still there. And I think, you know, the jury is still out on what would happen under a Clinton presidency. I mean, you would see some kind of renegotiation, some kind of change. But I, I think keeping us out of it is, you know, is, is, is a big step. Right. Well, I was in Vietnam, and people are extremely enthusiastic about the prospect of joining TPP. And the most important reason is the U.S. Yeah. So TPP without the U.S. is not that exciting. Right. And when you look at um, the ASEAN countries, they've been uh, integrating at a very fast speed in terms of free trade, in terms of capital flows, in terms of the free flow of human capital. So, um, you know, Failing TPP would drive um, countries looking more into the region uh, than you know looking globally. In, in the that end, would be unfortunate. In, in the end, uh, is there a little bit of a benefit if if you do look within the region and you're building out those partnerships within that that but that there's part already of the ASEAN, right? There's already a lot of free trade agreements. You yeah. know, in my class, I talk about four overlapping free trade agreements. Uh, already negotiated or being negotiated at that time. Yeah. So, um, yes, on the margin maybe because you brought in Japan, and but uh, it will be marginal. Uh, most of these countries already have free trade agreements with each other right. or with yeah. Japan individually. You know, and the U.S. has a couple in the region. But yeah. you know, right. no, So aside from the U.S., Japan's the big prize, but there was a lot of momentum toward free trade areas with Japan in the various ASEAN plus structures, the CJK, and China, Japan, Korea, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. So, um, I mean, the, the big thing was to bring this all together. And, um, you know, I, I think as the locus of trade negotiations, the locus of moving forward with trade globalization has moved out of the WTO and into these mega regional agreements, a lot of this is more political economy than straight economy. Yeah, uh, I agree. And, and I think, you know, it was a mistake by the Obama administration to push as hard for the TPP as a rivalry with China, who's going to write the rules of trade for the 21st century. That's a little overblown. But Made that sense sells, for Congress. Right? It, sells, it sells in the U.S. Right. Didn't sell so well in Beijing. Right. Uh, but, you know, there is, there is some truth underlying that. And frankly, the TPP, by the traditional measures of trade agreements, is a better structure than the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, right. the China-centered one, which is more of a spaghetti bowl with varied rules and, and all of that. Um, so it is kind of a battle for the soul of the international trade regime. And, you know, right. we've seen politically is... Even though those things are macro good in general, uh, there are distributional effects. And the people who either are or feel they are losing out, you know, they have a voice. Right. They're in votes. Midwine? And, you know, we were in the Philippines and, uh, um, and Vietnam okay. with the uh, Faculty International Seminar at Wharton. And the, the words that we hear daily is ASEAN, ASEAN plus one, ASEAN plus two, ASEAN plus three. Right, right. right. So, you know, TPP would change the landscape significantly. Um, so I think, you know, yes, you know, dealing with China is the slogan that uh, Obama was uh, was putting out there. But uh, there's a lot of truth in that, right? You know, whether TPP will go through will... Uh, to a large extent, it depends how um, well um, determine to what extent the U.S. will be involved in all these you know regional growth. What would be the changes that would happen to some of those relationships already if if TPP goes through? 
you know, take Vietnam, for example. You know, they're counting on TPP and almost all the business people we talked with are looking forward to the prospect of dealing and uh, trading with the U.S. Uh-huh. after TPP. Um, and they can't care less about China, of course. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but if TPP doesn't go through, you know, the Asian countries may have to look at themselves and say, you know, we should stop bickering and, you know, at, at there's something at stake if uh, we don't come together in the, in the trade. So um, th- that's my view of it. Yeah. I mean, the hope in Vietnam is it will be, as so many things in Vietnam since it began its reforms, uh, will be kind of a mini China, right? And so you know, Vietnam's strategy for foreign investment and foreign trade is right out of the Chinese playbook from the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. And WTO was a great thing for China in terms of the ability – for manufacturers, including heavily foreign-invested manufacturers in China, to go there and know that what they produced could be exported with very little tariff barrier right. uh, to the developed country markets. That's the story of why WTO mattered for China, that the Vietnamese <coughs> hope is the same thing. Now that they are quite competitive on cost, they just need to get out of the, the tariff barrier uh, problem. Right. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. By the way, uh, if you expect something to go through a lame duck Congress, if they can't get a uh, a ninth uh, Supreme Court justice, I don't think we're going to get uh, anything uh, pushed through on TPP. Yeah, I was on a panel on this subject a while ago, and I said there's a small closet on Capitol Hill where the TPP and Merrick Garland are hanging out. Well, <laughs> you you were telling me before uh, we went on that I guess you uh, brought up this uh, issue of an article you wrote for the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Go, go into a little bit about what you discussed. Yeah, well, um, so I, I spent some time in China earlier this summer, as I do in the run-up to pretty much every presidential election back to the 90s, even late 80s. And the thing that's always striking is is sort of relevant opinion in China. The people who do foreign policy, the policy advisors, people in government to the extent they're willing to talk, they like continuity. So there's been this real preference for keeping the president in power or the party in power uh, in the United States. They want all that. Yeah. Uh, 2008 with Obama was an exception. That was partly anti-McCain. Uh, but this this time, there's a, a surprising <laughs> might openness have, Might have been more anti-Sarah Palin there than, is some of that. than, there is than some John of that. McCain. Right. Uh, but there is, I won't, I won't say China is pro-Trump, but there is a relative uh, comfort level with Trump uh, compared to what you see in a lot of circles in the U.S., and I think there are a bunch of things driving it. One is the belief that he's a business guy, and all he really cares about is business, so, you know, that will take the pressure off the human rights and political and all that and the strategic stuff. Another is that he's a deal maker, right? Uh, And so he's going to cut some kind of deal. They can work with him. That's the mentality of a lot of the people that you know, people deal with in China and all of that. Uh, but then there's the darker side. I mean, there is a stream of opinion that says he's really going to drive the U.S. into the ditch. Uh, and for those who want to, well, either into the ditch or get it out of China's face, right? So right. we move from the economic into the political. The idea is that he won't be so engaged in the South China Sea issues and those kinds of things. Uh, he's more inclined to pull back. And he may actually speed the American decline for the worst hawks in China. But a lot of what drives it is anti-Hillary. That is, in the mind of many Chinese elites, particularly intellectual elites who do foreign policy, mm-hmm. uh, the sense is Hillary is behind the pivot. Hillary is behind the uh, whole Obama administration uh, pushback against China that yeah. sort of emerged over time, and that she's tougher than he is, mm-hmm. and that she is, in the words of some of my Chinese friends, ideological, by which they mean they think of her as the first lady who went to the Huayro uh, International Women's Conference and said human rights are women's rights, women's rights are human rights, this pushing this ideological agenda, which the Chinese <laughs> want to get out of the way so they can deal with the economics. All right. And on top of that, I think um, she did not give, give as much credit to the Chinese as Trump did. So, well, you know, the yeah. kind of abusing words uh, Trump used against China, you know, calling that 
uh, if I remember correctly, uh, China had been raping us. You know, China has you know yeah. been stealing with us, and you know the. The kind of very strong words, they really give China more credit than they deserve. But <laughs> there is a kind of yes, backhanded compliment. Yeah, there was like, right, wow, there's a lot of compliments going. Uh, but you know, and I, and I like I said, I don't want to oversell the point. It's just compared to a baseline, which is always we want continuity. This time, there, right. there's more openness. Now, you know, this is a month ago. I don't know what the last uh, <laughs> the last few weeks have done to that. And certainly, there are plenty of people in China who share the view that that uncertainty is bad, and that Trump is a source of uncertainty. And there are people who take seriously the threats of trade retaliation, although I think that is pretty heavily discounted. But it is interesting, and quickly, because we have to wrap up, is the fact that, you know, he has talked so much about if there are going to be trade deals, they're going to be trade deals that benefit the United States. And, uh, you know, he has the perception, at least in his mind, we'll leave that topic for another year, uh, that, that you know, the U.S. has really been been hit hard by some of the trade deals you know, NAFTA, you name it, and that that change needs to be made across a lot of deals. Some sectors of the economy has been hit hard. Yes, absolutely. You know, yeah. Right. I mean, you can, you can be a believer in free trade as a net good thing for yeah. the economy right. uh-huh. yeah. and still recognize that there are huge distributional consequences. It is bad for some people. It is distinctly right. bad sure. for them. Yep. And I think, you know, one of the mistakes among free traders in the U.S. has not been to pay enough attention right. to the distributional consequences of free trade. Great to have you both here. Thanks very much. Thank you. Minwan Zhao from the Wharton School, Penn Law Professor Jacques Delisle. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.